a lot of the times we'll go to an individual and they'll say, yeah, I spent $5,000 with attorneys and they weren't able to solve my problem. They said, I can't sell this property. Um, and so we come across that regularly and usually we're like, you know, they understand that they're selling us a property at a good discount, but they also understand that no one else has been able to solve their problem. And even the time and money invested with attorneys, they have been unable to solve the problem. When we're coming there saying, you know what, I'm willing to Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. We are absolutely stoked to have Ryan McDonald here today. He is with Asset Resolution Partners. Um, they specialize in cleaning up dirty titles for people that have issues with that. Um, Ryan, we love to kick it off with a story, man. So could you tell us one of the craziest real estate transactions that you've experienced? Um, well, there was one I did in Conroe, Texas. It was actually a landlocked parcel, uh, about six and a half acres. Um, we had to do some research on the land records going back to the almost the original Spanish land grant days to find an old easement that was platted for the property as part of our partition suit that was not indexed properly in the county records. So we came across this family. They were looking to try to sell this property. They couldn't sell it because it was landlocked and the neighbor had put up a fence blocking access to the property because they assumed that they owned all the land in between. Um, so we were able to buy the property from them, cash for deed, no title insurance. Um, we ended up finding the easement and we got a survey of the easement, provided that to the neighbors, let them know, hey, we know you think you own all this land, but we're going to tear your fence down and we're going to build a, a road, a 500 foot road right through the middle of your property to access ours. So needless to say, that was kind of a tough, a tough discussion to have with them. They weren't too pleased, but they understood that, you know, they really didn't have any right to any right to claim that property. Well, we ended up building the road. It took a little bit of time to get it done because it was during the rainy season around the Houston area. Uh, sure enough, we spent $25,000 building the road, just dirt, red dirt road with some caliche top on top and some culverts and then had it wash away with one of the with one of the uh, rains that came through. So then we had to spend another $10,000 to repair that. And once we had that road done, we took it to market and sold it to an buyer who I believe their intentions were to develop it. Mm. So the total process on that one from acquisition to sale was about six months. Super cool. Like, I'm so glad to get to interview you. And this is like, I kind of touch on these things in the real estate transactions that I do sometimes personally, but I actually have a listing right now that has some of the problems that I think you're, you're discussing. So I'm, I'm super excited to dive into it. But before we get into some of those, I want to talk about like, let's go into your backstory. What are the things that led you? I don't think people wake up in the morning as a kid thinking I want to get into dirty title issues. So <laughs> take us through your journey. <laughs> so uh, my family are immigrant parents from South America, from Chile. Uh, they came here in the seventies. I was born in the eighties. I was the first one of my family born here in the U S uh, grew up outside of Houston in a town called Angleton. Um, basically went went to school, graduated from high school there. Then I went to Texas State University in San Marcos, graduated with a biology degree there. 
Uh, I was doing environmental science for some time, then made this transition into marketing, advertising, you know, account management stuff. Realized I did not, I did not like that kind of role with corporate corporate life wasn't for me. Um, I knew I wasn't particularly good at the politicking needing needed to do that. And plus you kind of always have a chip on your shoulder when you're saying, I don't know, I'm doing a lot of work. Someone else is making all the money while I'm sitting here fighting for a one to 2% raise. Um, so I started educating myself yeah. in 2015, came across bigger pockets, started just listening to all kinds of podcasts, reading books, uh, spent about a year learning at least the real estate investment realm. And then I spent the next year trying um, on my own to try to drum up a deal. So started out mailing uh, letters, yellow letters, handwritten letters to high equity owners in my town. Needless to say, that was a learning experience. Sent out a lot of letters, got zero deals out of it because didn't realize my town is actually kind of affluent where I live. So a lot of those individuals, if they have a lot of equity, they're they're not in any distress paying nope, to sell. Exactly. So ended up spending a lot right. of money on marketing and and uh, a lot of time and effort there. But it did help me um, get the chance to network with some with some good individuals. Uh, at the time, I was working beer sales for Heineken USA. So I was working with a brewer in San Antonio and sure enough, my territory was right through downtown where a lot of the change was happening on the east side of San Antonio. Well, I come across the deals, uh, you know, when I would go from account to account, I would um, drive different streets, you know, write down vacant properties. Sure enough, I find one, I send this guy a letter, you know, among several, he calls me back. And he tells me he's willing, he's wanting to sell. Um, we discussed terms. Uh, he wanted, at first he wanted cash for his property, which looked to be about almost a third of CAD value. And I knew it was in a very desirable area. But shortly into that discussion, he said he actually didn't want cash. He wanted a property that was rent ready. Um, hmm. And... Can I stop you sure. for a second? You said CAD value. I haven't heard that, so, that term uh, The before. county appraisal district. So that's what the county mm -hmm. oh, thank would you. value of the property at. Yeah. So it was about a third of the appraisal district value. And when he said he wanted to do a property swap, I knew that was, as my first deal, that was well out of my my scope of, of knowledge. So uh, mm -hmm. sure enough, my brother-in-law had, had a great friend growing up that was flipping houses in San Antonio. So I reached out to him. And I say, hey, this guy wants to meet. Let's go look at it. We go look at it together. And he's saying, okay, well, what do you want to do? I tell him, I tell him, you can have this deal. I'm looking for a mentor or someone to coach me. So mm -hmm. you can have the deal. I'll bring it to you. I'll work with you. And you can have it as long as you can coach me. So at the time, he wasn't going to take free work from me. He, he actually offered to pay me uh, a finder's fee at the end. And uh, sure enough, we get that deal done. Three months later, he pays me a finder's fee. And then I did everything I could to attach myself to the hip. So he, mm. we came up with a, an agreement <laughs> where he would bring the cash. I would bring the deal. Uh, and we would split proceeds 50, 50. And that's how I got started in the summer of 2017 with my first deal. Wow. Super cool. Yeah, definitely. So I love that you just said you found a mentor number one and you're like i'm gonna attach myself to the hip to this guy so um that's obviously something that we see a lot but i mean a lot of people it takes some time to come to that conclusion 
Um, it seems like you almost found it right away. So I'm just curious, like, what your mindset was like there. Like, why did you want to attach yourself to the hip of this guy right away? Because a lot of people try to well, build Well, I, I don't know if it was from the get-go because, as I mentioned, I was trying to send high-equity letters for about a year and not seeing any results. Mm-hmm. Uh, Already experiencing pain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was networking, yeah. going to some meetups. Uh, I was running into a lot of people that seemed like they were in the game, but they weren't. I don't. I couldn't tell how legitimate they were, and I was actually following him on his Facebook and seeing that he was doing some some interesting stuff, uh, rezoning condo planning infill lots to resell. And so I thought, you know, if I bring him an opportunity, then this is the best way to one get in front of him and to learn from someone who's actually doing what I want to do. Um, and he had been doing it for several years and had some pretty good success. So I thought, you know, if with with the connection to my brother in law. Uh, I think it would be hard for him to say no to me. Uh, plus, mm-hmm. we we have a, an additional connection there, so I thought that was definitely beneficial to me finding him. Um, and then if you know, for anyone out there, I definitely recommend doing anything you can to get yourself a mentor and tying yourself to them as as soon as possible because it helps to expedite your learning curve substantially. Totally. Well, one thing I hear you saying is essentially you took the time to differentiate between the guys who are at these investor meetups who aren't doing the thing. And you obviously were able to vet. And I think that's a super important criteria. I actually see people hook up with mentors that talk a big talk, but don't walk the walk. And that's obviously could be devastating for the mentee because they're typically getting bad advice, et cetera. But you vetted this guy and it sounds like not only was he a great flipper, but you even mentioned he was doing rezonings and et cetera. So is that how you got into the, the dirty title game? Or? Um, yeah, because so his story was he used to work in the oil field and he would come to San Antonio. He liked how San Antonio was an old town, historic. And he noticed that, you know, it was there was still a lot of opportunity in San Antonio. And it was not far from Austin where Austin was having some dramatic changes quickly. And when he first saw San Antonio, he was looking at it going, you know what, if I, if I buy in the right pocket, I think San Antonio could be similar to Austin, except, you know, back behind them 10, 15 years or so. Uh, so he started buying lots on the east side of town and was realizing, you know, he was picking up for two, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. And then uh, he was able to resell them for, you know, 50, 60, $70,000. Now, though they weren't quick and easy fixes that a lot of the ones in San Antonio. So because San Antonio is such a whole, an old town, a lot of properties have been handed down from generation after generation. And, and because of the type of people that were buying at, at back in the day where when they would pass away, they did not have wills or estate planning in place. So a lot of the situations we would, he would come across were multiple heirs owning vacant lots and, you know, they couldn't solve the problem or find all the heirs in order to get them in order to solve the title problems to resell. So he started picking up partial interest from individuals, spending a thousand five hundred bucks here and there, just trying to piece it together. And then he spent, a, I think it was a full day with an attorney kind of running through scenarios on how you could solve potential problems and paid him more than his hourly rate was for his time and effort. And at that point, we picked up enough knowledge to know that if we run across these situations, we can we can solve them. So he was my avenue into the dirty title realm. And that's kind of how we got started. So I want to dive into some scenarios. 
So tell us, I mean, now you've already told us a crazy transaction or maybe, maybe we could do this. Maybe I can give you a scenario. So I may or may not have a client that has some land and that property is landlocked in the sense that there's no deeded access, but they've got, they've accessed the property for a long time through a neighboring property. And in my opinion, long enough to be able to, you know, uh, claim access to it. And then there's a, a gate, a way they can get through a gate. So when you're evaluating properties like this, how do you, first of all, price the properties? Do you do like what kind of discount on market value? And how do you understand if it's a problem we're solving and a problem not we're solving? So when we look at all of these, um, you know, the typical house flipper, wholesaler, uh, investor will do the, you know, 20, 30% of aftermarket repair or after repair value minus repairs and they'll come up with their uh, price there. Well, whenever you're buying yourself into the situation of the seller, you, you need to capture equity because a lot of that time can be consumed with uh, cost of capital, uh, you know, opportunity cost, as well as um, just your time and effort to spend with it and to spend on legal in order to spend on legal fees in order to fix the problems. So whenever you buy these types of assets, you, you have to buy the equity. And usually it, depending on how much I'd say hairs on the deal, how many, how much problems there are, whether or not you're dealing with multiple factors or just one, uh, usually that, that cost to, is about 50, 10 to 15, 10 to 50 cents on the dollar of as is price. Mm. So a lot of times, uh, wholesalers, will bring us properties that they're running across and they'll say, well, this property is worth $245,000 fixed up. I'm pitching it for one thirty-five, And then I tell them, okay, well, what's it worth today? If you put it on the market, they tell me, well, it's probably worth a hundred. I tell them, okay, well, I need to pick it up for $50, 50 cents on the dollar. And if there's multiple heirs, angry heirs fighting, uh, judgments, liens, etc. then of course that price comes down because our solve is mm. we're the easy button. We'll come in and step into your situation. You'll get cash now and you don't have to mess with it anymore, but we take your spot and now we will go through and resolve the problem and then take it to market. Yeah. And you guys have such a high cost of, I mean, you're getting attorneys involved for potentially lengthy periods of time, publications, that process is no joke. So yeah, that totally makes Correct. sense. Yeah, I just did one. Uh, took me about two and a half years from start to finish. So I actually closed on that one last week. So it, it takes quite a bit of time. And so you have to have that equity. There has to be enough equity in the deal to absorb those that legal cost as well as just your time and effort to put into it. Because no one wants to do all of that for $10 an hour work when they're absolutely so on our pre-call I think you mentioned that you had this one deal or I mean this is actually something that you do with some frequency right where there's like more than 40 inheritances like um yeah more than 40 people inherit a share of this property and he's able to navigate 40? this so like, can you kind of walk me through a scenario like that oh, where there's smart. just a massive pool of people that have little shares of this property Sure. I mean, it, it happens all the time. As I mentioned, it typically falls back on poor estate planning or, or no estate planning, as, as I rather say. So a lot of instances, you know, mm -hmm. grandma, grandpa buy this property. They both pass away without a will. Uh, no one, no one administers the estate. Well, they each have four kids. 
Well, out of those four kids, they've all passed away. None of them had their estates handled as well. Each one of them had, you know, four or five kids. Sometimes in San Antonio, you come, you come across 10 kids. Um, mm -hmm. And then out of those kids, you know, you've got additional deaths among them with heirs underneath. So uh, you, you can kind of see whenever there's a particular fact pattern, you can run across several heirs very quickly. Uh, rarely do I ever come across one or two heirs involved. It's usually at minimum five. Uh, and then it, it's as high, it could be as high as 65, 80 years. It just kind of <laughs> depends on the situation. The one that I'm, 60. the one that I'm working on right now was 40 years and it was the, the lady that owned it passed away. She didn't have any children, but she had 10 siblings and all 10 siblings were, had passed. And one of those 10 also had 10 children. And then out of those 10 children, seven of them had passed of which they had children. So you can kind of see how it can, it can grow rapidly. Goodness gracious. If you don't mind, take us down this thought pattern. I mean, just walk us through, like how in the heck do you solve a 40 person or 65 or 80 person? So, I mean, are you negotiating with everybody individually? Like, I mean, yeah. How, how do you go through this? So thing? in those, in those instances, we basically treat each individual person as their own transaction because they all own different different percentages um, for the most part, or, you know, depending on sometimes their background or their history, they've got judgments or liens against their names versus others that don't. So we take it on a case by case basis with, with each individual. And our intention is to seek the individuals out that have the highest, uh, that have the, have, have the most interest. And, you know, we, we talk with them and usually, you know, most everyone knows of the properties that we're buying in the family. There are times when people don't know and we've reached the third cousin or something that wasn't aware of the property's existence. But most people, by the time we typically approach them, they know that there's a massive issue. They can't fix it. And they've pretty much walked away. So we look at it and say, well, we think we could put, put this together. We have a few different extra strategies that we could use. So how about I give you X amount of dollars for your interest today? And all you have to do is sign a, sh a short closing package. And then at this point, you've gotten something you can go and live the rest of your life while I now try to work through the remaining heirs. So um, usually when you get in the high heirs, it becomes a, a you know, high number of heirs. It becomes a difficult process. It can be pretty time consuming. Uh, but yeah, the, we have to treat each one individually because like I said, a lot of the times you're just de dealing with different personality types. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's hard to get them to, to come to, to come to agreement with you and, and be willing to take a loss, Absolutely. even though they realize the other options. Um, so I'm curious, um, once you start inheriting these shares, is there ever been a situation where you didn't get a majority amount and you ended up just holding on to shares of a property that you couldn't dispo or, or, or give me an idea how that would look. Yeah. So typically on a lot of these, um, there are times when heirs aren't willing to, to deal with you. So we will approach it in a different manner. Usually it's, um, you know, well, depending on the asset, if it's a house or, or, or prop or vacant land, the approach is different. One is could, if it's a house, could we lease out the property in order to gain some income and, and re recoup our initial investment? And maybe we just keep it as a rental for, for little to no investment. Um, in, in, in Texas, uh, Texas property rights are, you know, they, they pretty much 
Texas is very has very strong property rights laws. So you know, whether you have one percent or ninety percent, usually it doesn't it doesn't matter who has a bigger portion when it comes to a property and whose whose rights can be either infringed or who can muscle the other person around. Uh, the the person with one percent has just as much power as the ninety as the ninety nine percent. In fact, sometimes they have more, depending because their interest is just so small, they can theoretically hold you over a barrel. Um, but um, if you're renting a property and you own one percent, you would technically only be eligible for one percent of the profit. That is that is correct. Uh, yeah, but and I said on on in the cases that we get involved, we typically want to buy a majority interest from several heirs at, at least at that point yeah. then then it becomes a little bit easier to manage and a little bit easier for the for the investment um but as i mentioned it with with all these heirs that you usually we're have we're, we have multiple backstops to our exit strategies um in texas if you have multiple heirs and they can't agree, sometimes we'll call them and say, well, you're not willing to sell to me, but how about, how about we joint venture and we sell this thing? You take your portion, I take my portion, and then we all just move on. Or if you want the property, how about you buy me out at market rate? Um, or the last option is if they're well, no, not willing to deal in either one of those, you go through the court system and you can do a partition, which is partition. The, the judge forcing the sale of the property. So, uh, Usually we like to keep a couple other backstops in play uh, when we do come across these situations. Sometimes if there's unpaid taxes, those are kind of left because we take we take the property subject to. And we know at some point the tax man's going to come foreclose on it. So there's another backstop that, that we kind of plan on. It all just depends on the situation. Interesting. Foreclosure could almost, like for tax reasons, could almost be in your favor. I mean, if... If you're potentially facing having to go through a partition sale, you know, if it ends up going to a, a tax, you know, tax default sale, then, I mean, cause you're still eligible for the proceeds above the sale price after expenses, yeah, right? Yeah, that's correct. So, um, like I said, we, we normally like to have several exit options, but you know, at times it, it could take a while. So whenever we're willing to park cash in an asset, you know, we're always looking at it going you know, our hope is to have this problem fixed within the next four to six months. But if this takes us two or three years, we're fine with the initial investment. And we're willing to ride it out that long. Super cool. So take, take me through like, so majority interest is like kind of a, a major criteria of yours, which I think is super solid because then your ability to make profit on income, et cetera. What, what type of dirty prob, uh, title problems are too dirty for you guys? Well, for us, it's not about that's too dirty. Uh, some of, there are some fact patterns which we try to avoid. Uh, for instance, if you've got someone living in a property and uh, they're not willing to agree to sell, usually that's a really bad uphill battle to fight. And so we look at that going, well, it's not really worth the time and effort to do that. Um, and then there's other, the biggest fact pattern that we normally come across is what is the value of the asset that we're looking at? Are we talking about a $40,000, $50,000 lot that even if we bought 50% for a hundred bucks, the asset isn't enough to warrant that investment because the return is so small. So, um, usually it's, it's the value of the asset ends up being the determining factor on whether or not we pursue mm. something or not. Uh, a lot of these times, these totally. types of assets have been consumed with 
tax delinquent debt or something along those lines. So usually it makes them a non-starter for us. Uh, if there's if there's overall equity of less than a hundred thousand dollars in each deal, not saying not equity that we we purchase, but just an equity, not profit, just equity in general yeah. across a hundred percent of the yeah. interest. Yeah. Which makes so much sense because you've got return on capital, which still could be really good on a $50,000 investment, but your return on time. I mean, these dirty title problems take a lot of time, no matter what the size of the deal is. Correct. And so you're, you're protecting your return on your time. That's correct. That's correct. For us, um, you know, a lot of the people ask whenever we take down some of these deals and we get the title clear, do we fix and flip or develop or do something along those lines? You know, we re- we've learned that for us, our dollar per hour is our biggest uh, metric that we need to track. So um, that especially comes to play when looking at these dirty title deals and saying, well, how long could this take? How much time will it will it require? And are we doing $500,000 an hour work fixing this or will oh, it turn God. into Yeah, that's a brilliant, brilliant point. So, I mean, I'm just curious, like, did you guys always think that way? Was that always a way to an- analyze or analyze, excuse me, um, whether or not a deal is good? Um, based on how much you're making per hour, or is that something you kind of developed over time? Yes. Yeah. So, so there are times when we'll take smaller margins on some deals, but we, when we see the picture, we, we know we can get it fixed within a short period of time. We'll say, well, we're willing to park $50,000 in this asset to make 25,000, but we know we can have it cleared up in a month to six weeks. Um, but it, it's all, we're always looking at our dollar per hour um, because like I said, we total dollars doesn't make a lot of sense whenever you're it's consuming all of your time. I flipped one house in my career and I, I wouldn't do it again just because you know, with contractors mm. and the time and the effort wasted, I could have picked up, you know, three or four deals that would have made me two or three times what I made on that flip. So uh, for me, that that's always the essentially the number one criteria that we look at when we analyze these deals. Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between five and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and got an inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. Diving into the process... So how much of this work are you guys doing? How much are you outsourcing to attorneys? And how do you even think about that process? Um, When we first started, we would outsource to attorneys quite a bit. Uh, A lot of the stuff is done by ourselves in-house. So we normally don't have a third party that we outsource anything to. Uh, 
because we do this so often, we've become very well versed in navigating land records to find deed histories, judgments, liens, etc. with regards to all these owners. And we've learned how to identify heirs. Uh, for us, one of the tools that we use when locating all these heirs is Ancestry.com. Uh, that's a great tool when we're trying to locate how many individuals we're potentially going to run across when it comes to an heir. And then uh, and, and we just work with the families at that point saying, okay, well, it looks like you are one of five heirs. And it looks like the other individuals live in X, X area. Uh, they were siblings or cousins to you. And I said, we're going to have to get everyone to work together in order to kind of resolve this, or I'd be willing to solve your problem right now. And you can just be done with it while I track them down. Uh, but for us, like I said, when we do these, we do it all in house. We we've gotten very efficient at it. And normally we can size up an opportunity within an hour or so, whether or not it's worth going after. That's really efficient. Uh, yeah. We, we do use our attorneys for the legal paperwork um whenever we need to uh or if we have a strategy call we, we're running across a particular situation and we just kind of want reinforcement as to what our thought process is on the fix and potential pitfalls and uh and so our, our we do have substantial legal expenses but um because we know how to navigate this stuff ourselves it's not as high as an, another individual would encounter Absolutely. So I'm curious what your team looks like, because uh, most people tend to have like specialist roles. Do you have somebody that really specializes in, in ancestry or or I'm just kind of curious what the team looks like because you're handling everything in house? Well, asset resolution partners, uh, there's several of us here. I'm, I'm going to say several, but, you know, there's seven partners, uh, but we really don't have a big um, employee base. We have one admin one or sorry two one yeah one admin one operations individual and the rest of us we source our deals and we we solve them on our own there is one one of our guys he's gotten so good at it he's essentially a, a genealogist on our team uh <laughs> where he's been brought into court against other genealogists and proven them wrong in court so <laughs> so like i said that, that knowledge kind of carries through with all of us because we've all helped train each other on how we solve these problems so so we've all, I would say, have become equally good at every aspect of this job. That's so fun. So to dive in on that, I'm glad you brought us into this part of the conversation, Tim. So essentially, you guys are running as partners. And is it truly like you all have your own businesses with the shared admin support and kind of a shared vision? Or is it more like you're working in concert? Can you kind of describe how, how you guys operate together? Yeah, so so we all operate under the the name Asset Resolution Partners, but we all effectively operate as our own individual companies with shared admin, admin support. Uh, so, you know, there there's a center to our team, which is uh, my business partner Logan. He's kind of the the trust that that brought us all together. Uh, and then the other ones of a you know myself, I typically operate as, as a soul, as my own sole business. And Logan is, is a partner directly with me. Now, although we do share resources, you know, the, the deals that I get are, are particularly my deals, essentially totally. for my company. And is Logan, is that the, your original mentor? Yes. Yeah. Logan Fulmer, he's my partner and, uh, and mentor. 
Okay. So I want to dive into this because Tim and I are partners and I carry several partners and I've discovered in the last maybe three or four years that I operate much better with partners than employees. And it's just because I just find that partners generally have a different mindset. They have a, an ownership mindset, one that, Hey, I'm going to go get everything. Like the job is done when the job is done, not when the time expires or those types of things. And so mm-hmm. Just kind of curious, you went through iterations. I mean, you were the mentee, now you're the partner. That's a hard shift sometimes for two people. Can you walk through like what's made this so successful as you evolve together? Well, I think I think it boils down to, you know, how hungry we are to learn and to keep going in and to grow to grow a business essentially. Um, going from mentee when I was with Logan, he, he saw the desire it was to get into this field and to make something and to really create something for myself and, and, and create a legacy for my family. Um, and so that's why we've all kind of developed partnerships instead of uh, having em- employee tiered organization, because we've realized with employees, you know, your, your desire to accomplish something is a bit different than an owner. Uh, you know, owners are willing to put in, the exorbitant amount of time and effort to solve problems and continue to grow the business. Whereas from an employee mindset, usually it doesn't, it doesn't carry that far. So for us, you know, it, it's, we're looking for similar characteristics shared between one another and, and it's worked great. Like, although we kind of operate as individual companies, we still share resources all the time. We'll, we'll share experiences or problems that we're coming across and and we'll all collaborate as, you know, seven heads better than, you know, operating better than one. Um, And I think that's been, that's been a testament to how successful we've been able to be in, in such a short period of time. Just to dive in one more question on this. So when you're looking for the team members, you know, you mentioned Logan being kind of the brain trust of, of this group. Is it, is it more like you look at it like parts of the body, like, okay, we've got an arm. Now we need a leg, a head, et cetera, as you're looking for partners or just more like, Hey, we're all have stuff in common. And so it's the commonalities that bring you together. Yeah, I think it's for us, it's, it's commonalities. Uh, We all look at things differently. So Logan is, is definitely, a, a bigger risk taker than, than some of us, but we're all essentially, I can say we're all hunters. We're all looking for a deal. We all share that desire to, to go out, find something, uh, monetize it. And so that that's kind of the main characteristic that, and whether or not, you know, we, we also look at, you know, the person's thought process. Do they, do they have the right sorts of questions that can make them, an asset to the company or is, is the thought process a little too different work wouldn't quite fit in our organization. Uh, at, at this point we're you know, we're, I think we're capped out on the number of partners because it becomes kind of difficult from accounting purposes to, to manage so many different companies and, and why not under, under one roof. But, um, I think that's, what's kind of set us apart is, is that kind of shared commonality of being a hunter, go out there, find your deals, find the opportunities and make them, uh, which has been so crucial to, to us. I really love that. So, I mean, I'm actually going to dive a little bit deeper into this because, I mean, you just mentioned all the the strengths and common elements that you guys have. So I'm actually curious with seven partners, how do you maximize the strength weakness ratio per, per partner, right? So, I mean, everybody's going to have different strengths and weaknesses. So how do you get the maximum outflow there? <sighs> 
then you know what that's that's kind of a hard question to ask or to answer <laughs> um as i'm as i'm looking at it i, I don't know if we necessarily mm -hmm. try to do develop our strengths or weaknesses anymore like i said we we've i think for for us the biggest thing is whether or not we're we've been asking the right questions and the desire to learn and to solve these problems um and like i said when it comes to the types of deals that we do they're all typically similar fact patterns or there's slight deviations but we've seen them enough to where we can typically assess the types of deals quickly um but it doesn't differentiate with regards to whether or not some person can analyze cap rates on a commercial property better than another. So they, so they do that. Um, I said, it, it's just kind of, kind of a difficult, I, I know that doesn't quite answer your question, yeah. but it, it's kind of hard to pinpoint. Yeah. I'll, I'll take it in a little bit of a different direction. So you have seven people working the same geographic area and correct me if anything I'm saying is wrong. Same geographic area, same type of problems to solve. So curious about your marketing efforts and curious how you guys are probably running across some of the same deals. And how do you guys work through that as partners? And so for us, I mean, we do come across each other on occasion. It's not as often as you think. Texas is a an enormous state. There's tons of opportunity here and there's tons of op new opportunities popping up every day. Uh, so although we do come across each other occasionally, you know, we're all close enough to where we say, okay, well, I just made contact on this owner and one of the individuals say, oh, I've actually been working on that one. I'm talking to one of the other heirs. I say, okay, well, how about maybe we, we joint venture this one together? Or I say, well, here, here's my contact. You take it. I'll go find another one. So, you know, we, we work really well with each other uh with regards to our marketing efforts we you know we do some text messaging but uh a lot of how we started from a marketing effort wise was coming through the land records looking for those potential markers in in land record filings and or tax delinquent uh properties that would help us target the uh what assets to go after after for us we like to operate more of like snipers than than you would say a typical wholesaler does sending out uh letters or cold calling or text messaging i typically comb through land records you know the number of leads aren't quite so high but my my conversion rate is significantly higher than uh doing other types of marketing methods so because of this method usually my marketing costs are next to nothing mm -hmm. That's a, that's a pretty awesome thing to have such a high margin business. That's mind driven that you're in the game for next to nothing. Yeah. I, I think we're all kind of like technicians and we like the fact that we're not spending five, $10,000 a month in marketing expenses. You know, usually our marketing, my marketing expenses are maybe $500 for a month, you know, and I'm, I'm it's, it's, it's more of a, of a, of a weight on my time. However, when you look at the deals that we typically look at, our margins are better than other typical deals that other investors will come across. Very cool stuff. I mean, I love this very low cost marketing as well. Um, I'm curious, I mean, obviously don't give us all your secrets, but like what kind of things are you looking for in order to identify that, that property that's worth getting your sniper rifle out for? So for us, the, the main source of leads that we always look at is tax delinquent data. We, we assess tax delinquent 
properties as the highest form of distress because if you're not paying your property taxes which is usually minimal to any other expense that's had if you're not paying your property taxes it means that there's other underlying issues either it's shared owner interest or you're running across some sort of financial problems which doesn't allow you to pay your property taxes uh so that's always our our biggest our our biggest criteria that we go after usually everything deviates from there uh there are times when we look at uh, old airship filings or um, we'll see demo orders or, you know, code compliance liens. But usually most everything is, is an offshoot of the tax delinquent data. At times we will look at uh, federal tax lien filings as well as additional opportunities. Um, like I said, tax delinquent data is pretty much our go-to on every deal. Okay. I'm super excited to talk about this because the first investment property I was ever involved in, I was never on the ownership title, but I helped with the deal, like, you know, do the negotiation was a tax default sale prior to the auction. So when you're looking like in California and it's probably different in Texas, it's five years before it goes to auction. Are you hitting these maybe year one? Like how, where in the tax default process do you want them to be before you're, they're hitting your radar? Usually at minimum two years. In, in Texas, they usually won't foreclose on anything less than two years. Uh, and for us, you know, two years or more is typically the initial uh, look. And another big item is how how much is the the tax taxes owed versus the value of the asset. You know, if we're looking at a you know five thousand dollar you know unpaid tax bill on a half a million dollar property, we're, we're just going to go buy that one. We're not even going to bother. But if we're looking at 30 or $40,000 in taxes against a $150,000, $200,000 asset, now I, know, now I know that there's potential opportunity there. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we assess which, whether, which ones we go after or not is the overall value versus the, the tax debt owed. Love it. And so to dive in deeper, so flipping wasn't for you. And this is much better. You're getting to use your mind and not having to manage contractors. I can completely relate to that. Like I would much rather solve complex problems being a math major than manage a group of people who don't always want to do what they're supposed to do. So was that just the main driver? Was just kind of a natural aptitude for this? Or was it more like, hey, the financial opportunity here is significantly greater? What was the big driver to this as a form of other elements of investing? Um, I think it, it's kind of a little of both. Uh, for me, I think I've always been kind of a naturally inquisitive person. I always kind of like to dive deep and maybe that's why I got my science degree um, mm -hmm. because I like to research a little bit more, which which is good and bad. Good because I can solve more complex problems than the typical investor can, but bad because sometimes I can also go down that rabbit hole right? <laughs> and spurt a lot of time. <laughs> uh, but it, it's uh, the, the biggest thing for us, it's it's first looking at it is, you know, the monetary spread there. And so that, as I mentioned, that's always that key indicator of going, okay, well, there's a look, there's a good spread here. I'm seeing enough distress. Let me do a little more research to find out what's going on. And if I'm coming across these other markers, then I know I've potentially got a good opportunity there. Totally. So when you're doing these deals, you, you can easily be the good guy. You can easily be the bad guy. You're the good guy sometimes in the sense that you're taking a problem off somebody's hands that they've wished was gone decades ago. And then some people probably see you as the absolute villain of the world, stealing properties from people at pennies on the dollar. So in your line of work, I mean, some lines of work, 
you know, like firemen are revered, police officers generally not. So when you're in these deals, how do people see you? Is it generally positive or? Yes. So it's generally positive because the individuals that we typically deal with don't have a solve. A lot of the times we'll go to an individual and they'll say, yeah, I spent $5,000 with attorneys and they weren't able to solve my problem. They said, I can't sell this property. Um, And so we come across that regularly. And usually we're like, you know, they understand that they're selling us a property at a, at a, at a good discount, but they also understand that no one else has been able to solve their problem. And even the time and money invested with attorneys and they've have been unable to solve the problem when we're coming there saying, you know what, I'm willing to give you some cash today. You just signed some paperwork and they look at us like, you know, we're a knight in shining armor, armor coming to coming to give them something for a property. They were thought it would never amount to anything. Uh, now there, you know, if you come across the other individuals within that same ownership chains that are typically the bad apples, uh, you know, or or someone that's trying to get the free ride, uh, or just trying to extort you for as much money as possible, those end up being different conversations. But for the most part, everyone that we've gone to, it's when they've essentially walked away and lost all hope in some sort of resolution, and we come in and we step in and we solve that problem for them. So they've always for the most part, been grateful with the help that we've provided. Wow. That is tremendous. Like that is so cool actually, because like you put yourself into a niche then that you're solving problems that even attorneys can't solve now. So I'm, I'm like really curious, like if somebody wanted to start implementing this strategy, let's say you were starting zero, you had to move to Idaho, right? And you wanted to rebuild this business. Mm-hmm. What would be the processes that you start doing? Who would you reach out to first? So, the, the biggest thing for us, which makes us so strong, is that we understand the the different laws pertaining to Texas. Uh, you know, different states have different laws uh, pertaining to property rights, estate, uh, estate inheritance chains and, and whatnot. Um, so for us, the, for, for me, the biggest thing would be to learn the local laws of your state because they vary from state to state. So a lot of the stuff that pertains to us here doesn't work in Florida. Uh, Arizona, Missouri, stuff like that. Um, and although I'm not attorney, I'm not an attorney and I, I don't try to give people legal advice. Uh, if you did want to learn this, I would definitely recommend reading the statutes with regards to the property code, uh, the estates code and kind of how they, they work with each other and then go find an attorney who does for us. The biggest help has been finding attorneys who, who understand real estate and understand estates and probates, uh, you know, a lot of the times individuals will go to someone, some attorney that they know that practices family law or personal injury or whatnot. They just spend a lot of time and effort and don't get anywhere. Definitely find the right source, the resources uh, for for the area where you're going to mm-hmm. go and, and to see, invest time with them to see how they can point you in the right direction with regards to solving some of the problems that you come across. So like I said, that would be the number one thing I'd say. Absolutely. And that makes a ton of sense, actually, because I'm sure you could establish really awesome referral relationships with these attorneys. I'm I'm assuming you already have some of those, correct? Yeah, correct. We have one in-house attorney and then we have, uh, I think it's six, six or seven other attorneys that we work with on a regular basis. So whether it's, uh, you know, some sort of small petitions or helping us clear airship information, you know, 
we, we have lots of resources and it's always important to have those resources to fall back on because you never know when one of them will will pay off. Absolutely, man. Really cool stuff. So, so Ryan, like, what do you think your guys' vision is for the next 12 to 18 months? What are you guys currently working on building? Are you looking to expand or just kind of give me an idea what you guys are doing? Uh, right now, um, looking to expand, I'm looking at hiring, uh, an individual to essentially train them up, uh, to be an employee of my company, to do what I do. Uh, that way I can kind of, you know, ex- broaden my reach. So you could say from the company, you know, with the, the way the market's turning right now, you know, we understand people say that the housing market, there's a housing shortage. Uh, we likely won't see any changes, uh, coming to housing in Texas. However, we like to err on the side of caution and say, well, you know, if we start seeing a bunch of job losses, which we predict is going to be the case with the inflation rates going up, then of course that's going to, that's going to create some problems uh, with regards to individuals being able to pay their mortgage. And also it creates problems with private lenders being able to lend to other house flippers. So for us, our big, our big focus now is to build our cash reserves, uh, so that we can, if it, if that time comes, we've got enough cash to buy up all the assets that we want um, while the competition has kind of fizzled away. Um, right now, like I said, I'm, it's our, our main priority is sell our inventory that we have as quickly as we can and continue to churn cash quickly in order to grow that stockpile of, of money that we have. Absolutely tremendous. So, I mean, if anybody out there is a wholesaler or something, they have a deal that is sticky, got dirty title, like what would be their way to get it in touch with you, Ryan, or somebody at your company? Um, well, you can look us up on Facebook and Google uh, Asset Resolution Partners. We're based out of San Antonio. Uh, you can contact me on LinkedIn. I actually don't know my LinkedIn handle right now, but uh, I'm also on Facebook as well. Um if you want to email me, my email is ryan at arpusa.com. That I'm usually pretty prompt with getting back to responses uh, that, that come in and, and helping people either push them in the right direction to solve a problem that they're coming across, uh, maybe giving them a resource that can help them solve their problem, or sometimes it's helping them look at it in a different way because with the types of deals that we run across, you know, each each situation is unique and we've kind of learned different ways to analyze the solutions to fix those problems. But those would be the easiest ways to get in, get in touch with me, email, look me up on Facebook, Ryan MacDonald. And, uh, if you yeah, have anyone has any help or needs any help, you know, I'm always open to, to provide guidance. So along those lines, you attached yourself to the hip of a mentor that it seems like has transformed your life. And I know we haven't gotten into any of the the number specifics, but it seems like you're doing pretty well, suffice it to say. So that being said, do you do any consulting? Like I know you're obviously offering, and we're very thankful that you're offering people can contact you, but do you ever like do consulting for like percentages of deals or flat fee consulting or? Um, Not quite because we're not attorneys and we don't want our advice to be construed as legal advice. Um, we can't charge for our services on a, on a rate or, or anything like that. The types of assets that we take that when we get involved in, we have to be some sort of owner in that particular property because in Texas, anyways, you can't practice law on someone else's behalf without an attorney's license, but you could practice law for yourself 
in, in, in the situation owner. that you come into. Exactly. Yep. So for us to usually get involved in deals, um, we have to be an owner. We have to be the buyer in that particular property. Um, now, whether or not we JV with someone, that's a different story, or maybe we pay them a fee for bringing us the opportunity and we take it from there. Uh, those are some things that we typically work through with, Love it. you know, on a case by case basis. So have you guys done this before as far as JVing or whatnot? I'm just kind of curious, like on what a deal might look like. Yep. Uh, we do. Um, we, we typically have our own form where you, you have a few different options. One, you can get paid a, a small fee up front just to bring us the lead. And once we get some ownership, you get paid out right then. Uh, you can get a slightly bigger fee if you take a ride with us and you can kind of learn the process and you get paid on the back end once we sell the asset. Or if you want to get a, a portion of the deal, then we do a percentage split and typically that also involves capital and investment from that individual to get involved in the deal. Uh, usually if you're wanting to do a percentage split, we're not going to foot the, whole, the entire financial bill mm -hmm. because you know, we want to treat it as a partnership, but we do offer those up now. However, that spread looks kind of depends on depends on the asset and the amount that the amount the asset could be worth or could be made from it. But those are the, the three different types of JVs, I guess you would say, that we offer. That's awesome, man! It's so cool. Like it, you know, just being able to to be in connection is. I just think that's awesome. People can learn this business, bring you deals, make money on those deals while learning. Like, what a great opportunity! Yeah, we, we like to tell people. You know, we're, we're obviously not ever going to be the highest and best offer. Um, you know, we're, we're all about, you know, creating a margin of safety. We tell people, you know, don't bring us a deal first, get other people to look at it. If no one else can fix it, let us try to at least point you in the right direction where you can fix your problem. If no one can fix it at that point and you're willing to walk away, then you bring it to us and we'll see what we can do to help you out. Um, and like I said, that's, that's why I said, usually we're always the last resort for a lot of these types of deals because in, in Texas, as far as we know, there aren't a lot of other people that tight take on these types of deals. So if we can't solve it, it's either because there's not enough margin there or it's just not worth the time and effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the most amazing parts of your strategy, um, as you mentioned, you have very low competition because there's not many people that can do what you can do, right? So, I mean, if you could establish yourself as one of the only people in your market that could accomplish something, I mean, that hits your main goal of, of maximizing your dollar per hour, right? Because you're just increasing your value proposition because nobody else can do it. Um, I think it's just, it's an amazing niche strategy. I mean, I really love it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's that's what we try to do to differentiate ourselves from everyone else is, you know, we can fix the problems no one else can solve or no one else knows how to solve. And if you've got a problem, bring it to us and we'll, we'll let you know whether it's something that, that is worth doing or not. All right. Well, absolutely tremendous. Um, Ryan MacDonald, like, I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on our show. Thank you so much for giving us a glimpse into your life and into your business. And to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is acquired one action at a time. So if you do nothing else, write down at least one action that you'll take within the next seven days. And please share it with somebody you know so they can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living the life of freedom. Thank you for listening. And we'll catch you guys on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. 
Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 